0: Had his moments. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a belt. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are running Paul Molitor. Paul, we have to know what is it like to be yeah. part of playing in the bottom of the ninth inning during a comeback of a Major League Baseball game? Everybody loves a comeback, right? Uh, you know, obviously, in the blessing of being in Major League Baseball for almost 40 years in a lot of capacities, I've seen some great comebacks. The most memorable one for me was in the 1993 World Series when I was a member of the Toronto Blue Jays and we came back in the bottom of the ninth to become world champions. Um, For those of us old enough to remember, it was a Joe Carter home run and one of only two World Series in history to be uh, climaxed by a walk-off home run. And I was a part of that. So I know the ultimate comeback in terms of baseball. So how do you relate that ultimate comeback to your faith in, in Jesus? You know, comeback, Uh, as far as faith in Christ is something that in a major way occurs when we first put death to sin, when we realize that Christ is the answer to overcome all the shortcomings we have in our own life. And that's probably our greatest comeback in terms of our faith in Him. But when you think about it, um, every time we fall short, we're asked to come back to the cross. And, you know, I I look at our day-to-day challenges of overcoming sin in our lives that I have to come back each and every day to realize that that's the intention of forgiveness, is that if we come back, he's going to be there and wash us clean. Uh, You know, he's faithful and just to forgive us uh, and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness.
1: Well, Wooddale Church, you love Paul Molitor. How fun is that to have the manager of the twins talking about his faith in Jesus and quoting verses like that that have meant so much to him. This series, uh, Bottom of the Ninth Stories of Comeback, has been so fun for us as a staff team to be able to preach through, because we really do believe that everybody in life needs a comeback from time to time. In 2009, the baseball season was getting ready to start, and there was a guy named Nick Adenhart who was the number 35 prospect in all of Major League Baseball. When he was in high school, he was the number one prospect in all of America as far as pitchers went. So he was no stranger to lofty expectations. When the 2008 minor league season started, he was pitching for class AAA. And he had a 4-0 record with a 0.87 ERA, which means he was really, really good, okay? Opposing batters didn't score a run against him a game. And so the Angels said, well, let's call him up. Let's see how he does. And he bombed. I mean, he was terrible. He uh, he allowed six runs a game at the major league level. He was only up for a few games, and the team said, we'll send him back down to the minors. Maybe he'll get some more seasoning. Maybe next year he'll be ready to achieve. And so when the 2009 season started, the Angels had some uh, injuries to their pitching rotation. And he found himself on the starting rotation at the beginning of the year. And when he finally had the chance to start in a big league game in 2009, it went awesome. He pitched a gem, six innings of shutout ball. In fact, at the end of the game, he would give post-game interviews, and he was just glowing, smiling from ear to ear. When the reporters asked him about this coming season, he said, you know what? I think this is going to be a much better season. I'm going to put 2008 behind me. I can't wait to pitch this year, and I'm I'm really looking forward to keeping my spot on the rotation. Even his manager, Mike Sosha, spoke highly of him, and then he left the stadium that night with three of his best childhood friends. In just a few moments after leaving the stadium, after pitching the game of his life, Nick Adenhart was involved in a car accident. A drunk driver hit his car. It killed Adenhart and his two best friends. One moment, he's on top of the world, and the next moment, he's gone. And it reminds us of the brevity of life. Because whether we live 22 years like Aiden Hart lived or we live to be 122, when it comes to eternity, our time on earth is short. The Bible speaks about that all over the place. Four times in the Psalms, we read about how short our life is. The first time we read about it in the Psalms, it says, you have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Every man's life is but a breath how quickly a breath leaves our body and the next breath is breathed. A little bit later in Psalms, the psalmist says, for my days vanish like smoke, my, burn, my bones burn like glowing embers. Now we're Minnesotans, we can relate with a campfire, we know what it's like to light a fire and to have these huge, huge flames and eventually the fire dies down and there's some glowing embers and given enough time even the glowing embers vanish. So is our life. Later on, the psalmist says this, my days are like the evening shadow, I wither away like the grass. It is state fair time in Minnesota, which is so fun, but it also means summer is just about to end. And in Minnesota, we know all too well about grass that goes into hibernation, that is here for a season, and then we have to wait so long for it to come back. Later on, the psalmist talks about grass again. As for me, a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. In other words, here today and gone tomorrow. Job knew a thing or two about the brevity of life. He lost his entire family except for his wife in one evening. And he would write a lot about how quick life goes in the book of Job. He says this, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. And a little bit later in Job, he says this, my days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. Several years ago, my family had an opportunity to go on a cruise, and it was this dream vacation. And I remember being at the port, and there were several cruise ships that were lined up at this particular port. And I watched as one of the giant ships made its way back out to sea, and I thought, surely I will see this ship for the longest time, but eventually even that ship disappears into the horizon. So are our days. Probably the most famous verse in all the Bible about the brevity of life was recorded for us in James chapter 4, verse 14, written by the half-brother of Jesus, and James simply writes this, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So are you happy you came to church today? (laughs) feeling good. Man, I'm charged up for the week. (laughs) I mean, if these verses were all there was about life, these would be like the most depressing verses in the world. But you know what? This life isn't all there is, friends. You and I have been created in the image of God. And the Bible says that because of that, we are eternal beings and we will live forever in one of two destinations. And that matters so much. C.S. Lewis is an author that many of you have read. Maybe you read his Chronicles of Narnia as a kid. Maybe you've read some of his great theological books. In his book, The Weight and the Glory, C.S. Lewis says something absolutely profound about us. He says, The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, and some of you immediately have a person you're thinking of there, that person may one day be a creature with which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a corruption such as you now see only in a nightmare. He goes on to say, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours is the life of a gnat he goes on to say but it is immortals whom we joke with work with marry snub and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors our time on earth is so short how do you interact with the people in your life about once a month i like to take uh, some time in my lunch break to get away from like everybody and so I'll go to downtown Hopkins. I love Hopkins, the only town in the world with a Main Street whose, whose name is like one word, Main Street. And on, on Main Street in Hopkins, there are all these antique stores. And I love the antique stores in Hopkins. My family hates going to Hopkins with me. They don't want to walk into the store with Dad because they have no idea of how long it's going to take. And I'll be in those stores, and I love to look through the comic books. I know I'm 49, and I still love looking at comic books, okay? But I also love looking at the old portraits that hang up in antique stores all over America. And you'll see these pictures that are pictures of somebody's grandma or great grandma or great grandpa and i wonder when i see those pictures do, do their family know that their relatives portraits are for sale in <laughs> antique stores like what kind of family sells grandma's picture to be sold to somebody else's family who does that i hope my family never does that all right <laughs> and i look at those pictures and i wonder were these people loved did they did they have people they loved Did they accomplish great things in their life? Did they live their lives on mission? Did they know Jesus? And I wonder, what would those people say to us if they could speak to us right now? But they can't, because their life was a mist that appeared for a little while and then was gone. Several years ago, I had a friend who introduced me to a verse in the Psalms. And I know I'd read the verse probably dozens of times in my life, but it had never left an imprint in my soul. And this time, my friend shared this verse, Psalm 90:12, that simply says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And as a father whose children were growing up and as a guy who'd been married for 20 plus years at that time, my heart began to say, okay, Lord, how am I numbering my days? And I wonder today, how are you numbering your days do you live your lives with intentionality or do you just flit about from one day to another because throughout this series we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and we said that disciples of Jesus are people who are following Jesus they're people who are being changed by Jesus and they're people who join Jesus in his mission. And with eternity in the balance, I wonder today, how would you answer those questions? Are you living on mission with Jesus? Are you following him? Are you allowing him to change you? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brad was teaching here, and he preached a wonderful message. And he talked about Matthew 419. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Are you living with that type of discipleship intentionality in your life? Because I want to suggest that if we're Christians, what that means, and I know that word gets a bad rap today, but at its least common denominator, what it means to be a Christian is that we're an imitator of Christ. We're a little Christ. We're, we're trying to be more like him. And I wonder, are you modeling your life after him? Because if you are, you're modeling your life after the one who lived his life with more intentionality than anyone in the history of the world. Jesus Christ lived a life that was on mission. And you know what he does? He calls his followers to do the same. He calls us to be men and women and boys and girls whose lives are lived on mission. And so I wonder, when you wake up in the morning, how does that make you feel? Like when you wake up in the morning, do you wake up with this realization that, God, you have placed me here in the year 2018 with great purpose, and God, you're going to do some great things in the world, and God, allow me to be a part of that today. Or do you wake up with, oh man, it's another day and I gotta go to work. Because Christ has called us to live on mission. See, Jesus didn't make a mistake when he gave you the job that he gave you. He didn't make a mistake when he gave you the family that he gave you or he put you in the neighborhood that he put you in. He didn't make a mistake when he put you in that school that some of you are going back to in another week. Jesus created you to live on purpose for him. Now, when I was pastoring in Woodbury, I was, I was here at Wooddale for seven years, and then I left for 10 years, and, and I'm back. And when I was in, in, in pastoring in Woodbury in about 2015, somebody sent me an email from Wooddale, and it had this thing called Vision 22 on it. And I'd love to just kind of give you a test today and say, okay, can you all quote from me Vision 22? But I'm not going to do that to you. But when I read Vision 22, even as a pastor of another church, my heart leapt within me. I got excited about what God was doing here. Do you remember what Vision 22 is? Vision 22 is to impart the hope of the gospel to 700,000 people here, near, and far, and to create a clear pathway to spiritual maturity. And I think the only appropriate way to end that quote is to go, woo I mean, come on! That has got to, like, make you thrilled. As you read that, if, if that doesn't get you excited, then friends, you better check your spiritual temperature. If you hear that vision statement, you think that's a great vision statement, but it's for somebody else, then you're missing the point. Because God created us and he's placed us here. And if you're at Wooddale, this is your vision. And this is a vision that you get to be a part of and you get to be a part of making that happen. And then when I found out a little while later that you know, you're not even halfway through, we're not even halfway through with this vision, And more than 350,000 people have already had the hope of the gospel imparted to them. My heart's like, are you kidding me? God, we're ahead of schedule? That is amazing. And we're not going to presume upon the Holy Spirit that he's just going to continue that. We don't get to just sit back and rest in our laurels, but we need to say, okay, Lord, you're up to something. And if you want to reach more than 700,000, if you want to go over and above that, then I'm in too. And Lord, let me be in on this mission right now. May we be a church that seeks God's face, and may we obediently respond to him and use the gifts that he's given to each one of us to live on mission for him. Now, with all that background information in place, I want to talk to you about one of the greatest comebacks in the Bible, and it's the comeback of a man named Peter. And You might say, well, didn't Brad preach about Peter a couple weeks ago? And the answer is yes, but we chose to talk about Peter twice in this series because he has so many comebacks in Scripture. And his life is so much like us. He has these great successes and these horrible failures. His life is an absolute dichotomy. I mean, you see him as this outspoken disciple who's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. And then he'll say these amazingly profound things that just everybody is just silent as they hear him speak. You see him as this courageous rack of a man who at sometimes cowers. You see him as this person who lives his life on mission and then gets distracted and and chases after the wrong stuff. If you ask the average person in the street, which disciple of Jesus do you identify with the most? Do you know what answer is given more than any other? Peter. Why? Because like Peter, so many of us fail like Peter, so many of us have experienced the grace of God in our lives. There, there's a couple of chapters in, in Matthew where you see this dichotomy of, of Peter's life live itself out. In Matthew 14, Jesus uh, has had this amazing lesson. He's taught thousands of people. He sends his disciples out in the boat, and they come upon a storm, and they're freaking out. And then they see this phantom walking on the water. At least that's what some of them think. Some are like, it's a ghost. And Peter's like, no, that's Jesus. And Peter gets up out of the boat, only disciple with the courage to do this. And he has the audacity to think that he can walk on water just like Jesus. And he does. And for a while, he's just walking right toward Jesus. And then at some point, we don't know why, maybe he lost faith. Maybe he got overconfident. Maybe he thought it was him. But he begins to sink. And Jesus lifts his hand down and he lifts Peter up. And boy, that's what you see Jesus doing all the way throughout the Bible. He's constantly lifting up people who are drowning. Whether it's in water, whether it's in sin, whether it's in our circumstances, that's who Jesus is. A couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, so who do people say that I am? And the disciples start to answer in kind of a popcorn way. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. Some say that you're a really good teacher. Some say you're one of the prophets, And then Jesus asks a penetrating question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And there's Peter, the first to speak up. And he says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I love how Jesus answers him. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Remember, he's called Simon up to this point. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter. I'm changing your name. Your name is now Peter in Greek, Petros. It's rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. And if I'm Peter, at that point, I'm thinking, hey, 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 hey. (laughs) I'm the rock, and he's going to build his church upon me. Come on. And I think all the other disciples, because they're famously competitive, are like, why didn't we speak up? Why wasn't I the first one to answer? I could have been the rock that Jesus built his church upon. I could have been named Peter. And then something amazing happens. Maybe again, Peter's a little bit overconfident, but Jesus begins to talk just a couple verses later about the things that are going to happen to him. The Son of Man is going to endure many things, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be tortured and killed and three days later he's going to rise from the grave and peter has the audacity to speak up and try to correct jesus and peter uh, and i'm sure he did it for all the right reasons is like never lord this shall never happen to you and what does jesus do jesus turned and said to peter get behind me satan you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He went from being the rock that I'm gonna build my church upon to being Satan in like five verses. But you talk about dichotomy. And I love what it says right here. You don't have the, in, in your mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Peter was at his best when the concerns of God were his concerns. And we're at our best when the concerns of God are our concerns. How oftentimes do the concerns of God become secondary in our life? We allow the noise of the world to drown out the voice of God. Listen, we're all living between two worlds. Which world are you living in? When I was in college, I um, thought I was going to be an accountant. That was my major. I was an accounting major, and I loved accounting. I loved numbers and cubicles and computers, and, and I loved tax season. Uh, I, like, I, I dreamed about being an accountant. I was going to retire at 35. They had my whole life planned before me. And God wrecked me my freshman year of college and called me into ministry. Now, I remember sharing that with my grandfather, who had been a pastor for decades, and my grandpa called me into his office, and he was one of these old school preachers that liked to, like, preach sermons to his grandkids, and he'd always do it with a finger pointed at you, all right? And so, I get pulled into his office, and he says, Brian, God's called you to preach. When you preach, make much of Jesus. And he's pointing that finger in my face. And then he says, because only one life you have to live, only what's done for Christ will last. He said, Brian, history is God's story. It's not your story. You get to play a bit role in the unfolding story of God. Make sure you play it well. Make much of Jesus. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we, we like Peter, want to say, God, you're all wrong. You've got it wrong. You, you know, I'm supposed to be an accountant. Or, God, you got it all wrong. I, I, I I just can't do what you're telling me to do. God, I know you've given me this mandate that I'm supposed to live on mission for you, but it's just so hard. You don't understand what it's like to live in the year 2018. And we want to tell God how we're supposed to live our lives instead of letting his concerns be ours. Let's not be consumed with the voice of the adversary, but be consumed with God's voice. Now, you would think if you're Peter that hearing Jesus say to you, get behind me, Satan, might be like a permanent deterrent to ever correcting Jesus again. Like, Jesus, I'm never going to correct you again, okay? I don't want to be called Satan by the God of the universe. But it wasn't. Because what Jesus pronounced would happen, did happen. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a Last Supper with his disciples. And after sharing the Last Supper, he went out to the Mount of Olives, and he continued to teach them. And in Matthew 26, starting in verse 31, to read this. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And again, that wasn't just Peter. All the disciples said the same thing. Peter was determined to prove Jesus wrong. It was unfathomable to him that he could possibly disown Christ. And so when Jesus is arrested that night, Peter's right there with him. He takes out his dagger. He chops off the ear of one of the arresting officers and Jesus picks the ear up, kind of gross, and puts it back in the guy's head and somehow miraculously heals him. And at that point, Peter and the disciples disappear. They know we're in trouble. But somehow... Peter gets the courage to go back to where he knows Jesus is. And so in the middle of the night, he makes his way to the home of one of the most powerful men in all of Israel, a guy named Caiaphas, the high priest. Now remember, Peter and the disciples were from Galilee. That was about 70 miles away from Jerusalem. And it was kind of like Hick Country, oh County, okay? It was like fishermen and carpenters. And in Jerusalem, it was the educated elite and the wealthy. And he is in the courtyard of the sophisticated this wealthy, this arrogant leader who is overseeing the plot to assassinate Jesus. Everybody in the courtyard knows who Peter is because he's been so outspoken. They know he's been there with Jesus. He's surrounded by the soldiers who arrested Jesus that night. I mean, all of that tells me Peter was pretty courageous to even be there. And then the first test comes. And it comes in the form of an unlikely person. It comes in in the form of a servant girl. And in that culture, a servant girl to somebody like Peter wouldn't have been very threatening. And she comes up to Peter, according to verse 69, it says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. I mean, it was this ridiculous lie. Of course he knew what she was talking about. Everybody knew who he was. But when given the chance to stand up for Jesus, he just... Shut up, or actually spoke up and said, "I don't know. Maybe the, the girl just wanted to know. What do you think's happening to Jesus inside? Maybe she just wanted Peter to tell her some stories about his adventures with Jesus. Talk about the miracles. Tell me what it was that Jesus was teaching. When given the opportunity to speak up for Christ, he, he denied that he even knew him. Even worse than just shutting up, some of us do that too. It was swing and a miss." Strike one for Peter. Test two comes, and it's in the form of another servant girl. Again, shouldn't be somebody that he's so afraid of. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So now he has has upped the ante here. He isn't just denying it. He's denying it with an oath, which to a Jewish person was to say, before the God of the universe, I swear an oath that I don't know the man, and may I be dealt with ever so severely if I'm lying to you. That's kind of what that means. And so he is, the, to the best that he can in the culture that he lives in, denying that he knows Christ, he's failing miserably, swinging a miss, strike two. Then the third test comes. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent, because he's Galilean, he's not from Jerusalem, he's not a city guy, your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses. In other words, he thought of the foulest language he could think of. What is the language that a Jesus follower wouldn't use? He thought of every swear word that he could think of, and he just starts cussing. And then he swears to them, I don't know the man. And immediately, the Bible tells us, the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and the Bible tells us he wept bitterly. Strike three. And then he leaves. He leaves the courtyard. And for the rest of the night that Jesus is crucified, we don't see Peter in the narrative. He's not there for the rest of the trials. He's not there when Jesus is beaten by the soldiers. He's not there when Jesus is taken out back and scourged and his back is just ripped open. He's not there when the crown of thorns is placed upon Jesus' head. He's not there when the crowds mock him and spit at him. He's not there when Jesus is on the road to the cross and, and he's having to carry the cross, the cross, and he can't even carry it because he's so weak and his, his back is just a bloody mess and he collapses underneath the weight of it, and another man is asked to carry that cross. Do you think Peter wishes he could have been that man? He's not there when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's not there when Jesus pronounces things from the cross, like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, or into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he's not there when the spear pierces his side and blood separates from water. No, Peter is scared to death. The best indication we have is that he went to the upper room where the Last Supper had been shared and one by one over the night other disciples join him. Only John is at the cross with Jesus. All of these men hiding in fear. All of these men having failed Jesus. And it reminds me that when we think that we have failed God, don't we all tend to at first retreat before we repent. It happened in the Garden of Eden. It happens almost every day in homes across our nation. I remember when I was a toddler, uh, I had two mischievous older brothers, and my parents would occasionally get a chance to go out on a date, and a babysitter would come to our house, and my brothers would always tease the babysitter, and this was back in the day when they had these canvas white tennis shoes, and they'd pretend to take the shoe and flush it down the toilet only I didn't know they were pretending. And so I took the babysitter's shoe and somehow managed to get it into the toilet and I flushed and flushed and flushed until it went down and then the babysitter found out. (laughs) And she said, when your parents get home, you are in so much trouble. And I believed her. And so I asked my brothers, will you help me hide? And they put me on the top of my closet, like on the top shelf of my closet. (laughs) And I think I sat there for two hours hiding until my father found me, thinking I was going to fall off the whole time. Because when we think we sin, when we think we fail, God, we tend to retreat instead of repent. And what God is saying is, hey, listen, repent. That The Bible tells us if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive us our sins and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you want to know, does God remember your sins, he says he separates them as far as the east is from the west, which mathematically means that he doesn't remember them. And how, people say, well, how can God do that? Because he's God and you're not. And when the accuser of Christians stands before God and says, hey, remember when that person did that? Jesus says, no, I not remember that. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. Well, if anyone in the history of the world needed a comeback, it was Peter and the followers of Jesus on Easter morning. Mark 16 records the story of Easter and a few women went to the tomb and as they got to the tomb, they see that the the stone had been rolled away and they're shocked by that and they walk into the tomb and there's an angel at the tomb and the angel has a message for the women. He says, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And I love verse seven. If you're a YouTube person, go on YouTube and watch the Skit Guys skit about Peter being forgiven. Because, you know, the way they portray it is the women come back and, and, and there's, there's Peter and they say Jesus is risen from the dead. He's like, well, how do you know? And, well, there was an angel there. What did he say? He said, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen from the dead. He said, what? He said, go tell the disciples and Peter. He said, what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Because if anybody needed the grace of Jesus on that first Easter, it was Peter. Oh, he'd been so outspoken. He was supposed to be the rock that Jesus would build his church upon. And Jesus allows an incredible comeback to happen in his life. You see, so many of us are afraid of failure. One of the greatest fears of humanity is that fear of failure. Maybe it stems from when we're in school and we get those grades and we're afraid of getting an F and what, what's going to happen if we do. And so many times we as human beings label ourselves as failures. But when it comes to God, failure is always an event, it's never a person. I want to say that again. When it comes to God, failure is always an event, it's never a person. Don't believe the lie that you're a failure. You're not. God wants to do great things in and through you. When Jesus sees you, he sees a person of infinite worth and value that he considered it was worth going to the cross for so that you could experience his grace. On that Easter Sunday, Jesus knew that Peter, who felt like a failure, needed grace, and so Jesus reached out to Peter, and he gave him a chance to let go of the past a chance to let go of the past and to be forgiven, and that's what some of you need today. You have felt like such a failure, and what God is saying is, listen, I wanna do great things in you, I wanna do great things through you, and the devil is trying to hold you down, and he wants you to believe that because of all the junk that you've done, you are incapable of being used by me, and it's not true, and it's time to stop believing it. It's time to live on mission. It's time to believe that you are who I say that you are. You are not who the adversary says that you are. And Jesus says, you are so valuable that I went to the cross for you. Jesus loves you, friends. He does, and he believes that you can do great things. On the same night that Peter would deny that he knows Christ, Jesus said something to him earlier in the evening at the Last Supper. And it's found in John chapter 14. And it says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Who who does Jesus say that about? Whoever believes in me. Do you believe that Jesus can use you to do greater things than even he did? Some of you think, that doesn't even sound right. But listen, a few weeks after Jesus rises from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven, Peter, the denier, is preaching a sermon on something called the Day of Pentecost. And over 3,000 men and women would place their faith in Jesus Christ because of his testimony. As Peter lived on mission, making God's concerns his concerns, oh my goodness, God used him to start a movement that we're a part of today. And he wants to do the same thing through you. So at the beginning of this series, we said that we're going to be talking about stories that come back, and we said everybody needs to come back. And maybe this is the first Sunday that you're here in this series, because we know how summer is in Minnesota. So I just want to review, for some of you today, maybe the comeback that you need to make is that you need to come back and you need to follow Jesus. For your entire life, you have somehow bought into the lie that Jesus is for everybody else, but he's not for you. You have somehow bought into the lie that you're like the exception to the rule. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we'll believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And that's true of you. For some of you today, you need to take Jesus at his word. You need to stop listening to the lies and you need to listen to that still small voice that's been calling you to Jesus for years and you've been ignoring. Today's your day to follow. Today's your day to stop running. If that's you, uh, we're going to have a time in just a moment where we're going to invite you to come down and we're going to invite you to do something very non-Minnesotan. We're going to invite you to walk an aisle and say, I need Jesus. And I want somebody to pray with me and to help me start a relationship with Christ today. And we're going to have some pastors up here And we would count that a privilege. And friends, all throughout the day, people have been doing that. And I want to encourage you to make a commitment today to follow him. Jesus loves you so much. Secondly, some of you today, you need to come back to being changed by Jesus. And you remember a time in your life where you prayed a prayer to receive Jesus as your savior, but you haven't been living for him. If you were put on trial for being a Christian today, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict you of the crime. There are parts of your life that you at one time told Jesus, Jesus, you can have me, but right now that's not at all where you're at. And right now you're you're hiding stuff from other people and you're letting sin just creep into your life and, and you, need, you need to come back to Jesus and you need to let him change you. and You need to recommit your life to Jesus Christ today. And I'm going to ask you to do the un-Minnesota thing too. I'm going to ask you to be courageous. Dale's going to be preaching about that for the next four weeks. I'm going to ask you to walk down here because this is a judgment-free zone. This is a place where people meet with a God who is the only one in the world that has the right to judge any of us. And I want to encourage you to get right with him today. Finally, some of you today need to come back to living on mission for Jesus. You've allowed yourself to be distracted. You've allowed yourself to believe that that the concerns of this world are are more important than the concerns of God. Maybe you've allowed yourself to become so depressed with the state of our nation and the state of everything else that you've forgotten that God's put you here to to, to be salt and light, to be somebody who, who lives as somebody who's different. We have opportunities as you leave church today to find out how you can be involved in living on mission for Christ here at Wooddale Church to be part of that huge, audacious Vision 22, to believe that God wants you to play a role, a role that would say that you're going to use your spiritual gift and you're going to serve him. And so we'd invite you to go out to the great room today and, and, and see what God's doing in the ministries of our students and our children and how you can be involved in media ministry or how you can be involved in ministries of compassion or care. And if you're too busy to do that today, it's okay. We've got a website, wooddale.org slash serve. And this is a new website this week. And on there, you'll be able to read about all the different volunteer ministries here, how you can get involved. And you know maybe we all ought to just do that anyway so we can all see all the great things God's doing here and we can pray that God would work because we're a couple weeks away from a new ministry year. And I believe that God wants to do great things in 2018, 2019. I believe that the world has yet to see what God can do with a church that is wholeheartedly committed to living on mission for Jesus. But the mission begins with following him. So as the worship team comes back up here, I'm gonna pray a prayer and then I'm gonna encourage you if uh, you need to do business with God, that you would be courageous enough to come down this aisle as we sing the last song, Come to the Altar. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you that you love us. God, thank you that you uh, know everything about us and that you're not content to just leave us this way, but that you want to do a work in every one of us. God, I pray that we'd have the courage to be men and women and boys and girls who would just say, God, here I am. Use me. God, for those right now who are in a seat, who are wrestling with whether or not they are ready to give their life to you, to surrender to you, to Again, as Romans says, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that you've raised him from the dead, God, that that there would be men and women who would come forward today and that we'd give their life to you. God, I pray that there'd be others who would say, I'm tired of running, I'm tired of playing a game with God, and I'm coming forward today to say, no more games. God, you can have me all. Lord, I told you I was yours and I'm holding back, and I'm not going to do that anymore. God, I pray for those who need that courage today to come forward. Lord, I I pray for those who are sitting here and saying, God, I've I've been squandering the gifts that you've given me. God, may this be the year that they find such incredible fulfillment in living the life that you have called them to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.